is the Eagles. I would argue that they are the best American rock band of all time. That is their 1972 classic, Witchy Woman. She held me spellbound in the night, dancing shadows and firelight, crazy laughter in another room, and she drove herself to madness with a silver spoon. Yeah, that witchy woman, she got the moon in her eye. Uh, You can tell we're going to have a little bit of fun today. Uh, I will fully admit to you right now that my least favorite holiday is Halloween, but we're going to have a little bit of a Halloween-themed episode today, and we're going to talk about witches. So as we do this, uh, you know, we've all probably heard of the Salem witch trials, or we've all heard the phrase of a witch hunt, but this is a historical thing and I think a lot of us maybe don't know not only the role it played in the early days of colonial America, but the role that it played for hundreds of years in medieval times in Europe. And so I think you'll enjoy hearing a couple of these stories today and just a brief history of witch trials, you know, in in world history across a few hundred years. But more importantly, of course, we will take the millennial in the middle approach, and I'm going to discuss what might be some takeaways from what we can learn from the Salem witch trials and how they might still be relevant to us today. So what we probably know as Americans are about the Salem witch trials. To give you a little bit of an idea of timing here, this happened in colonial Massachusetts in this town of Salem in 1692 and 1693. So this is long before even the Declaration of Independence, right? 1692, 1693. But this is actually one of the last, you know, I guess high quantity of number of witches that were convicted uh, in history. A lot of it actually happened hundreds of years before in Europe. So Salem wasn't first. In a lot of ways, it was actually last. Uh, Several centuries ago, many practicing Christians and those of other religions, but mainly Christians, had this strong belief that the devil could give certain people the power to harm others in return for their loyalty. And so this whole thought of the devil working through people on earth that were around us and that these witches were making a, you know, quote unquote deal with the devil in return for that loyalty. That's what was defined as a witch. And it started this witchcraft craze that really went through Europe like wildfire from the 1300s all the way to the end of the 1600s. So this is three, 400 years that witchcraft was something that people were watching for and investigating and trying to rid from their society. Now, do you have any idea the number of supposed witches that were executed in that period of time? Uh, The numbers really range, but most estimates will tell you that anywhere from 80,000 to 100,000 supposed witches were executed. Yeah, you heard that right nearly 100,000, mostly women, that were 
in a lot of cases, burnt at the stake and being executed simply because they were labeled as a witch. Uh, now, when this really took hold in Europe in the mid-1400s, a lot of it started with the, publica the, publication, the publication of a book called Malaeus Maleficarum, if I'm saying that right. Usually that's translated to the Hammer of Witches, which was essentially a guide on how to identify, hunt, and interrogate witches. It was that book that basically spurred this witch craze to go viral. Uh, they labeled in this book witchcraft as heresy, and it quickly became the authority for Protestants and Catholics that were trying to flush out the witches that they thought might be living among them. For more than a hundred years, this book sold more copies than any other book in Europe besides the Bible. So think about that. I mean, this is in the early days of the printing press when people are getting books for the first time. The Bible is all of a sudden now sent out to people across the world and they're able to read it for the first time. Many of them hearing the Bible in their own language for the first time. But the second bestseller is this book on how to identify, hunt, and interrogate witches. Now, witch hysteria started to decrease in Europe but it grew in the New World. At this period of time, uh, especially in the New England colonies of America, it was highly Puritan, highly religious. There were groups of people that were trying to, you know, flee Europe for religious freedom, and things weren't going well. They were, you know, still reeling from wars between both the French and the British, uh, a smallpox epidemic was just ravaging their society, and there was this ongoing fear of attacks from Native Americans, from these neighboring Indian tribes. And this tense atmosphere just created this perfect scenario for wanting to find scapegoats, for trying to blame all of these bad things that were happening on someone or something. And this is what really created the environment for the best-known witch trials that took place in Salem in 1692. Now, I wasn't too aware of the details of the Salem witch trials before I you know, came up with the idea for this episode and did some studying. So let me quickly just give a recap of the story for those of you who, you know, generally know what it is, but don't really know what happened. So it all started in January of 1962, when the nine-year-old daughter of the local minister in Salem, uh, Salem Village, his name was Samuel Paris, um, and the nine-year-old daughter was Elizabeth Paris, and her and her cousin, who is basically the niece of this minister, started having fits, including violent contortions and uncontrollable outbursts of screaming. And so they take these girls to the local doctor, William Griggs, and he diagnoses them with bewitchment. So think about this. This is like the establishment doctor that's di diagnosing these two young girls who are the the family members of one of the most affluent people in town, because he was the minister, he was the religious leader, diagnoses them with bewitchment. 
And some of these same symptoms started to exhibit themselves in other women or girls around town. And in late February, arrest warrants were issued for the Paris's Caribbean slave, Tatuba, along with two other women, the homeless beggar, Sarah Good, and the poor elderly Sarah Osborne, whom the girls accused of bewitching them. So these three accused witches are brought before the town magistrates, and they're questioned. And at the time, their accusers, these young girls, appear in the courtroom and they're putting on this grand display of spasms, contortions, screaming, and writhing around. Uh, Good and Osborne both denied their guilt, but Tatuba, their slave, actually confessed. Now, some might say that she was likely seeking to save herself from conviction by acting as an informer. She then claims that not only was she a witch, but there were other witches acting alongside her in the service of the devil against the Puritans. And this hysteria spread through the community and really throughout the rest of Massachusetts. And a number of other accusers come forward, basically pointing out or calling out other witches that they thought existed in the community. So many of these witches actually confessed and then they would name others. So this was also common in Europe before. Now, I don't think in America there were the same torture tactics that were used in medieval Europe, but what would happen is these witches would confess when placed upon this pressure, and when they would confess, they would name others. They would bring others along into this, uh, you know, oh, they're guilty as well, which that whole concept really gives us the theory for when we're talking about a witch hunt, just trying to get as many people involved in this as possible. So what happens? In May of 1692, there's a new governor of Massachusetts, William Phipps, and he orders the establishment of a special court of Oyer, to hear and determine her to decide these witchcraft cases throughout Massachusetts. These judges then presided over these court cases. Uh, the first conviction was made against Bridget Bitch Bishop on June 2nd. She was hanged just eight days later on what would become known as Gallows Hill in Salem. Five more people were hanged in July, five in August, and eight in September. In addition, seven other accused witches died while in jail, and the elderly Giles Corey, who was one of the accused witches' husbands, was pressed to death by stones after he refused to enter a plea at his arraignment. Okay, this is definitely a story that is kind of, it's riddled with lore. It has this Halloween spooky feel when we use the word of witch. But I think if we look at what happened during the witch trials in general, but specifically in the Salem witch trials, what we see are some characteristics of the human condition that put us at our worst. And while You know, it's easy to look at 100,000 people that were killed because they were called witches or 20 people in a summer that are hanged in a small town in uptown, uh, a small town in Massachusetts. It's so easy to look at that as just extreme and crazy. 
I think there are some parallels that we can learn from this when we look at our day and age. So what I want to talk about are just three takeaways that I had tying today into the history of witches. The first principle that I learned as I studied into this is a lot of these times that created the environment for these witch trials to take place were bad times for the people there. And something that really kind of rings true is that it was almost always guided by fear. And the majority were often looking for someone to blame. And this fear comes from being afraid of people who are other than, who seem different. This is something that unfortunately as humans, we are very prone to do when times get tough. We want something or someone to blame. And the easiest thing to get people to be afraid of is what you don't understand. There was an article that was talking about the witch craze in Europe, and it said early witches were people who practiced witchcraft using magic spells and calling upon spirits for help or to bring about change. Most witches were thought to be pagans doing the devil's work. Many, however, were simply natural healers or so-called wise women whose choice of profession was misunderstood. So among these witches were often midwives, or they were people that were marginalized in society. They were widows. They were single women. Often these women had an ugly appearance and just an ugly appearance of, you know, having boils or looking like a hag or looking different or other than gave people enough reason to have suspicion that they were a witch. And then what you have throughout is this power that a label can have. When someone doesn't fit in the group, when they seem different, when they're not a part of the major way of thinking or living, well, what do we do? We want to give them a title that makes them different than us. Now, how often on this show have we talked about the danger in labels? And, you know, I don't like to use terms like Democrat or Republican or conservative, liberal, gay, straight, black, white. Like when we look at ourselves as just a label, it unfairly takes away the ability for us to be individuals. And in all of these witch trials, there was only one question that ever really came to place. They weren't debating whether or not this woman did something or whether someone was harmed. Often those accusations were made, but it wasn't a typical court case where they were trying to prove what the woman did. Rather, they were answering one question. Is she a witch? That was the only question. And if someone was then viewed as a witch, all of the preconceived notions of what it meant to be a witch and how evil that was, and maybe the real wrongdoings of some people that were labeled a witch, were thrown onto every other person that then might have that title. 
And so that to me is one of the most fascinating part of these witch trials is they weren't really looking at the merits of a case of what someone did wrong. Rather, it was simplified down to this basic question of are they a witch or not? And if they were, burn them. There's a famous witch named Agnes Sampson whose story to me demonstrates when someone of power fears, when they have that fear that comes into them, what they can actually do. Agnes Sampson was a Scottish midwife and healer in the 1500s. Now, in 1590, King James VI of Scotland married Anne of Denmark and Norway, who, along with her court, had been fearful and bewildered by the subject of dark magic. So the king's new wife, the queen, is afraid of dark magic, right? And the queen let her fears get the better of her. As they were traveling back from their wedding from Norway to Scotland, they experienced this dangerously treacherous storm and en route to Scotland actually almost have a shipwreck because of this bad storm that came about. Now, being a little superstitious, the queen says, well, the only way that that sort of storm could have happened is if they're trying to kill the royalty. They came to the conclusion that it must have been a witch that cast a spell on Mother Nature and started the horrendous storm. So when they get back to Scotland, safely might I add, the king launches a campaign against witches. Over 70 people were accused in this year of trying to kill the king and putting a spell on Mother Nature. And Agnes Sampson was one of them who actually was the one that most people believed she must have been the one to put this spell on Mother Nature. Now, the confessions were brought upon by torture, uh, and a lot of the questioning actually came from the king himself. At the beginning, Agnes very vehemently denied all the charges made against her. She even denied that she'd attended a witch's coven on Halloween night and all of these stories that came up about this infamous storm that plagued the king and queen's voyage. She was like, I didn't do it. But unfortunately, the torture just ended up being too much for her to take. It broke her spirit, and after days being sleep-deprived and exhausted by being bound in a witch's bridle, now that's an instrument basically where you insert four prongs in the mouth of the witch and attach them to a wall, after several days of that, she confessed that she was an ally with Satan and did conspire to kill the king. She was then strangled and burned to death. Yeah, I know this is a little dark. I told you it's a Halloween episode. But look at what happens when the person in power now wants someone to blame a hardship on. This leads me right into the second takeaway or parallel. And it is this. Just because you are in the majority, that doesn't mean that you are right. So this obviously had to be a pretty mainstream and accepted way of thinking. One, that witches were real. And two, that it was acceptable to 
always be on the lookout for them and to investigate and hunt them down and ultimately convict and execute people that were looked at as witches. Now, how do we know this idea was mainstream? Well, I just talked about the publication of that book, The Hammer of Witches, right? It was the second most purchased and read book in Europe during that period of time, behind the Bible. So this wasn't some weird or extremist way of thinking. As hard as it might be to wrap your head around that, the belief in witches and the acceptance of killing them was accepted by a majority of people. Now, it's easy to look at the past and see what people are thinking and be like, oh man, that, that's so off. That's not even close to reality or the truth. But that is not how the people in that present time felt about it. It was the minority in a lot of ways that felt like maybe witchcraft and these witch trials were out of line. To prove that, one of the most famous witches in Virginia's history, so again, we're talking about colonial America, her name was Grace Sherwood. Her neighbors alleged her, alleged that she had killed their pigs and hexed their cotton. I mean, imagine going to trial for killing your neighbor's pigs and hexing their cotton because they had a bad year in the crops. These other accusations then followed against Sherwood, and she was brought to trial in 1706. The court decided to use a water test to determine the guilt of her innocence. Yeah, listen, a water test. What does that mean? Sherwood's arms and legs were bound and she was thrown into a body of water. It was thought that if she sank, she was innocent. If she floated, she was guilty. Sherwood didn't sink. She floated, which then convinced the community that, indeed, she was a witch. She ended up not being killed. She was put in prison for eight years and eventually let go, but was convicted of being a witch and spent the next eight years of her life in prison. In fact, Benjamin Franklin wrote a satirical article about Grace Sherwood in New Jersey in about 1730, so 25 years after it happened, uh, in the Pennsylvania Gazette. He brought to light the ridiculousness of some witchcraft accusations, and it wasn't long after that that the witch mania in America started to die down. Now, I talk about that water test, and I have probably some of you going, wait, that sounds familiar. The water test, isn't, what that, isn't that what they talk about in Monty Python? And yeah, actually, that scene is based on true events that actually happened and true beliefs that were commonly held by people. Now, just for pure entertainment now, Monty Python does this, you know, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, they do this witch trial that is a scene that shows just how, uh, how ridiculous these witch trials could be. And of course, they poke fun of it here. But listen as the logic is explained and as groupthink against someone other than is displayed. What makes you think she's a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. I got better. 
Whether she is a witch. Are they? Why are they? Tell her! Tell her! Tell her! Tell me, what do you do with witches? And what do you burn apart from witches? More witches! Wood! So, why do witches burn? Because they're made of wood. Good! Oh, yeah. So, how do we tell whether she is made of wood? Build a bridge out of her. Ah, but can you not also make bridges out of stone? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, uh, does a wood sink in water? No, no. no it floats. It floats. Throw her into the pond. <laughs> what also floats in water? Bread. Apples. Uh, very small rocks. Cider. A great gravy, cherries, mud, a churches, churches, lead, lead, a duck. Mm. Exactly. So, logically, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood. And therefore, a witch! A witch! A witch! A witch! My favorite part is at the very end of that scene where he says, so logically, and I guess the logic actually follows going through like, what do we do with witches? We burn witches. What else do we burn? We burn wood. What does wood do? Wood floats. And if wood floats, what else floats? A dock. So all of a sudden you see what happens when logic is defined by the majority. So now for the third takeaway. Up to this point, we really have just talked about negative sides to the human condition, and we've told some stories of death and being burned at the stake and tortured, and it definitely is a little dark. But the last takeaway, I think, is a little more positive here, and we'll end on a more positive note. What we do see eventually happen when we look at the story of the Salem witch trials is that the government stepped in, even though they were way too late and they made some major mistakes, but they did step in to try to correct this wrongdoing and this injustice in an effort to protect the minority. Now, we live in a democracy, and often people might think of a democracy as just majority rule, but in a lot of ways, government is there to protect the minority. And I think a good way to live in life, especially if you're in the position of the majority or privileged, is to look what you can do for the most marginalized people in society. Now, at this point, this is an example that the most marginalized were witches, and they were having extreme consequences for that. But if you look at the Salem witch trials, what took place once this court was put in place to go out conducting these witch trials is they found that the early trials were based on what they called spectral evidence. It was basically testimony about dreams or visions. So they were simply taking people's word for it. 
they didn't really have any evidence to convict someone of being a witch or even more importantly, doing something wrong. And that is what then was put into debate. A respected minister, Cotton Mother, wrote an imploring letter to the court that says, look, you can't allow that sort of evidence to be what we're convicting people of in these, in these cases. And, you know, he ultimately got ignored by the court, but his son followed in his footsteps, and his son's name was Increase Mather, who was actually the president of Harvard at the time, and he denounced the use of spectral evidence, and he said this, It were better that ten suspected witches should escape than one innocent person be contemned. Governor Phipps, in response to this plea, and also his own wife being questioned for witchcraft, ended up prohibiting further arrests. He released many of the accused witches and dissolved the court of Oyer and Terminer, and Phipps replaced it with a superior court, which disallowed spectral evidence and only condemned three out of the next 56 defendants. Is it good? No. Perfect? No. Progress? Yes. Phipps eventually pardoned all who were in prison on witchcraft charges by May of 1963, but unfortunately, a lot of the damage had already been done. 19 people had been hanged on Gallows Hill, and the 71-year-old man who was pressed to death with heavy stones like we talked about. During that period of time in Massachusetts, nearly 200 people overall were accused of practicing the devil's magic. So... I hope you enjoyed this story. I hope you learned something today. And I am now not going to be the one to make the applications to today's society. That's for you to do. I studied history and I found some common threads. I found some themes that for me were takeaways. And now it's time for you, as you might be thinking about this episode throughout the rest of the day, to see how you can watch for some of those human characteristics that are often bad and how they might display themselves in society. So first, we always want to try and find someone to blame. And the easiest people to blame are those that are different and other than us, and that is all driven by fear. The second takeaway being just because you were in the majority doesn't necessarily mean you're right. Just because your way of thinking is mainstream doesn't mean always that it's accurate. And lastly, government is ultimately there to protect the minority. We don't live in a majority rule society. And especially if you're in the majority, you have to make an extra effort to listen, seek to understand, and seek to help those that might be other than and could find themselves victim to a witch trial in modern day. Until next time. Clowns to the left me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Mm -hmm.